the Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. They thought they had it all figured out. We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder became a mystery. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. More dangerous than they could imagine. How about some payback big time? Even if it means paying the consequences? L.A. Confidential Rated R. And now that we've been talking about Roland Emmerich for the past 20 minutes, it's the perfect time to, to talk about Noirvember as our, our look through film noir continues here at Reconsidimation. I'm John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, we are, we're setting the Wayback Machine for... Is it our favorite year? Would we dare say 1997 is our favorite year in, in film, all of film history? It's stacked. I said, said with sarcasm. But. It's stacked, though. <laughs> Pretty stacked. It is. It is. It is. Uh, well, we've had a, a fun November so far. We, uh, we look back at uh, Double Indemnity, maybe the most classic film noir of all, arguably. Uh, last week, you can check that out in the archives at reconsidimation.com if you missed that one. But uh, yeah, we are we are looking at 1997's L.A. Confidential. Um, I know we we touched on it last time, but but for those maybe that are listening for the first time, what do you guys think about film noir? Where is that? Uh, where does that rank for you? Are you a fan? Are you not a fan? Is it growing on you? Is it something you haven't seen that much of? What do you think? I haven't seen enough of it, but I like what I see. So it's an ongoing study, would you say? Yeah, it's, that's nice. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. It's also an ongoing study. I also like the things that I've seen. I don't search it out, but, you know, having gone through film school, saw a few of these clinic, kind of classic uh, noir movies. Uh, certainly like the style of some neo-noir and definitely am a fan of more recent tech noir type type movies so yeah uh i would say that i uh, you know the tech noir is on pico it's a club yeah i've never seen that i've only seen the tech noir club from terminator the yeah. first terminator movie that's yeah. that's the so when you say that i'll have to i'll have to swing by uh, my next time i'm in los angeles yeah I'll, i mean check it out. stuff goes down there once in a while but you know you just it's got to be seen cyborg cyborg humanoid robots that yeah i don't want to i don't want any part of that they, they tend to just come in when they want blast the place up but you know what that just that only lends to the intrigue so highly recommend it four four stars uh i'm gonna hard pass i'm just gonna take a look at that in the movies but um but yeah that's that's kind of where i'm at on on noir i think it's a cool uh ongoing style that i appreciate in more current movies yeah, it's it's uh, it's something I always you know I, I'd seen a few I'd seen a few of the big ones some of the Billy Wilder stuff which we talked about and and a few others but it's always been uh, an area of film I wanted to explore more and 
in the past few weeks, I've been I've been trying to catch up little by little. The most recent one I watched is also one of the more famous film noir films, uh, Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum. Mm. Really, really excellent. Okay, I'll highly it recommend it. So it's and, and it's not your it's not necessarily your like gumshoe detective you know kind of stereotypical film noir that it kind of looks like it from the poster but it's uh it's it's not what i thought it was going to be at all no that's good i'm all about not the stereotypical things so yeah so here's here's what needs to happen you continue to watch all of them and then just vet it all for me and you just (laughs) let me know the ones i should check out so that i don't have to watch all of them copy yeah all right consider it done so far, I would say of of the the new ones I've seen out of the past, Key Largo uh, and the original Postman always rings twice. Uh, very, very good. I'm literally writing those down right now. But yeah, film noir. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a a style of of. It's almost mostly a style of cinematography and tone um, that has very harsh lighting. It's based in in German expressionism. Um, it's usually comes with pessimistic or or a, a lot of cynicism uh, in attitude. Usually, there's certain kind of techniques that get used, like voiceover narration and. Um, you know, featuring a, a maybe a detective. It's got a femme fatale. It's got, um, uh, you know, those visually a lot of trademarks that um, set it apart from uh, from the other films of the day. And it mostly, you know, the 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 key time period of film noir was from early to mid forties uh, through the nineteen fifties, and then it started to kind of. Uh, dwindle down and other things came into focus and and over time we refer to films that are based in film noir as neo-noir combining with other more modern techniques Um, but I mean what do you think in general film noir do you think people are we did talk about it last time but again what do you think are people watching old school film noir or is that kind of gone the way of the dodo almost the way of the dodo. You know what's gone the way of the dodo? That term. <laughs> it's from Last Crusade. It's a little <laughs> Last Crusade reference. Uh, I would say that I think most audiences are not currently seeking out film noir movies. Uh, I'll say that there's probably a niche group of people who who do. I think I have a good friend named Scott Magoon who he definitely searches out movies like that and watches them with his kids and kind of he's into that kind of older style filmmaking and Mm -hmm. and classics. But I think that those are few and far between. I just don't think it's kind of in the, and it's not contemporary enough for modern audiences. Yeah. It's, it's, I think older films in general, probably at this point, when I say older, I would say maybe pre 1980, you know, that library is just not getting viewed as much as, as time goes by and, and we're, you know, getting further and further away from those decades that I don't think, you know, incoming film students and filmmakers are, are looking back that far as, as much as they were when we were kids. I mean, it's, it's 40 years later, these movies are almost 80 years old, some of them. So 
uh, that's a, a lot to ask when we were, you know, when we were coming up, what was, what was 80 or, I mean, film yeah. had just started. <laughs> we, I mean, other than film school, other than in film school, we weren't looking at movies really from the 1920s and thirties. Exactly. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. So, like maybe, maybe the fifties, you know, I remember really liking the blob and, and um, sure. You could cherry pick a couple here and there. Yeah. But, but yep. not, not a whole lot. Yeah. What are you going to say, David? Well, it's generational, you know, it's like every, it's not, it's it's just time continues to go on. Movies get more impressive in terms of technology and, and pizzazz and, and uh, the money that backs it and mainstream appeal, blah, blah, blah. But like, I think, I think of, uh, I was in the, like Rite Aid or Walgreens or whatever at the check stand waiting for my inline waiting to go out. And, you know, you see the magazines and stuff. And I, I, I forgot that I had noticed this maybe a year or two ago, but there's a magazine for like our parents is like older, like, like there's a magazine, I think it's like called like golden or it's called like, I don't know. It, it, it's some sort of, but it's basically like stories Boomer. about, it's stories about old like old school like hollywood and tv stars like and so it's uh, people that you never you don't hear about today and it's like celebrating their career and their life like and i don't i can't at the top of my head i can't ima i can't remember who we're talking about but like it's just like people you wouldn't talk about but it's definitely a magazine geared toward that generation and then what was mainstream for them and all of that and i was like that's fascinating that's a very hmm. particular you know, magazine that it has nothing to do about today's pop culture and it's it, right. uh, and all that. So, you know, in that, but there, that's going to be a thing when we're super old, it's going to be the stuff we, that were formative for us between, you know, our teen years and like age 40, right? Like, it's like, Hey, remember this? Remember the Goonies? Uh, remember Sean Astin? Our rest in peace. Like, you know, here's, <laughs> here's a Sean Astin retrospective. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guarantee it. Something like you know, they won't be paper products in by that. No, they'll be they'll be chip implants. Yeah, but the uh, I think the idea stands. <laughs> There's whole like you know generational uh, interest, and so film noir, you know, it was like a it was a hot item, and it's something that gets revisited uh, uh, as we go, and but in new iterations and and modern things. So I mean, yeah, I don't I don't know. It has its place, but well, I think most... that's the only way it really survives is by modifying to the style of the day and using yeah. some of the, like we said, some of the techniques, the narration or the lighting or you know this or that kind of hand picked and morphing into what um, is a more modern style of that era. I mean, even starting in the even in the late sixties, we talked about Point Blank, which. You can listen to in the archives at reconcinemation.com earlier this summer. Uh, that's got some some a little more neo-noir, the long goodbye in the 1970s, Blade Runner for sure in uh, 82. Even movies like like City on the original City on Fire and and Seven and Body Heat, those are all great examples of uh, taking that noir style and mixing with um, you know the the films of the of that era uh but also you know when you look up neo-noir 
LA Confidential is one of the top ones that that comes up almost immediately, usually like top three or four. But is it really film noir? Let's talk about it as we go through. Um, watching it this time, I'm I'm not so sure it actually just because it's set in the you know the fifties doesn't automatically make it film noir. I mean, I think it's got a couple things that would link it to film noir, but it's not it's not fully committed. I would yeah, I would say yeah. I I had I I mean I'd seen it many times. I always considered it film noir, but it wasn't until watching it this time where I actually put those specific glasses on that uh it it was it was not ringing those bells this time. But but let's get into it as we go through. So um David, can you sum up film noir in just a quick version for those that either haven't seen it in a while or are listening to this without having seen the movie at all? So some of uh, LA Confidential, you mean? Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a film uh, uh, about 1950s Los Angeles. Uh, the LAPD has corruption growing within it, and we sort of centered on like three central cops: one being sort of uh, you know by the book, one being kind of a brute, and the other one kind of just a slime ball kind of smarmy kind of celebrity kind of guy and they investigate you know a series of murders and deliver their own brand of justice uh, as these cases uh, uh open up yeah oh all intertwined with the real life mickey cohen who was the gangster sort of running things uh the los angeles crime scene at, at the time and we're mixing you know an interesting thing about this movie is we're mixing reality and fictional characters like really interweave interweaving them in, in a fascinating way but uh la confidential when was uh when was the first time you guys uh each of you saw this movie brent uh what about you well as we discussed, and as we've, uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I, I had never seen this movie. So I just saw it for the first time a couple days ago. Uh, when this movie was released in 97, uh, you know, we were in film school. Everybody had a whole bunch of opinions about how amazing this movie was. And I basically being a stubborn ass was like, I'm not going to watch that shit. Cause wow. I like goodwill hunting. So, so I didn't, I never watched it. I was, uh, I was not part of the fan ba bandwagon, uh, but I did, I did just see it and I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I think goodwill hunting still better, but I liked this cool. movie. It was fun. 1997, the year with the only two with only two movies that came out that year. Well, uh, I'm not even going to bring up, the other one that everybody was talking about at the time, because that movie can disappear. <laughs> 1997 was an amazing movie for a uh, year for movies, an amazing year. So many good things we, that we have. There's just so much fuel to go through uh, all throughout the year before we even get to LA Confidential. So uh, I'm I'm excited to start mixing those in. I think we've already got a bunch, haven't we? Yeah, we've done a bunch of 97s. We did There's Copland, a... right? 
Why is that the only one I can think of? Uh, <laughs> we yeah, we've really, we've really made our way Copland. through ninety-seven. <laughs> well, we have our no. we have our our lost do... episode. You know, our our our. Well, that's a that's a totally different thing. Our, I thought our... we did a few other movies. Maybe we didn't. Uh, well, we did. Uh, did Starship Troopers? We did Starship Troopers. We did uh, what was uh, our summer movies? Uh, we, we did, did face, face Off. Is face? Yeah, there yeah, you go. Face Off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got we a few others in there. Haven't but... done uh, Good Burger yet, but we'll have, get have there. Have not done Good Burger. <laughs> that's that's on the list. But mm. uh, we also did an episode that has yet to be released, uh, where we walk through the entire year of 1997 and uh, talk about pretty much every major movie that came out. So yeah, so that was looking this. to be about an eight-hour episode. So we have yet to uh, finish that, but we're still recording it. Yeah. We're, we're recording it concurrently with this. We're in summer of 97 <laughs> currently. Um, yeah. What about you, David? When did you see uh, LA confidential for the first time? Uh, it was like five years ago. I really, I just, just like, I have to, it was always on the list of like, I got to get around to it. And uh, just happened to, it just happened one night. <laughs> like so, the movie, uh, it happened yeah, one night. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it was just time. So, yeah, that was it. I remember all the buzz from Oscar season that year. Yep, uh, it was exciting. <laughs> but um, and I, but I think at the time I wasn't interested in a period cop drama. Like, like I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> So like what is this movie even about who are these people like i don't even care yeah i, I still like i don't know i still like exciting like you know main you know mainstream shoot 'em ups and stuff like that or yeah sci-fi shit or i'm like I'm oh, whatever guys in suits in the 50s boring if i was totally uninterested myself i'm totally yeah. with you if you want to watch a cop you know cop story you're probably going to watch cop rock right is that what more what you're looking for you remember that? Uh, more, I'm more like fish police. Yeah, <laughs> fish police. I don't know what either of those things. Cop are. Rock was like a Stephen Bochco show from like 1990. That was a musical about cops. Have you heard of that, David? Oh yeah, I, kn- I knew exactly what you're talking about. That's why I went to really? Fish Police, which was another TV show that was like, <laughs> yeah. oh my god, I don't remember. It was from like early 90s, and yeah. Uh, all know. all good things that must be rewatched. It was, um, it was anyway. an underwater or, or seen for the first time animated yeah. police comedy with John Ritter. So that was cop, that was wow. fish police. Anywho, really, oh, John Ritter. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I remember. Yeah. So Brent, similar to you, I was on Team Goodwill Hunting. I was also on Team Titanic what? in in '97. Uh, I missed. I missed LA Confidential. I missed Boogie Nights. I missed a bunch wow. of others that were. Um, I was late to the party on all of those because I was way too busy seeing Titanic over and over and over in the theaters. Um, I'll tell I'll you this: it. every movie that we've mentioned in this podcast thus far, including Good Burger, all better than Titanic. That's <laughs> that's what I'm. I'm Yikes! When's the last time you saw? There. When's the last time you saw Titanic? In the theater, the year it came out. I'm I, bet that movie it. Again. I bet you'd love it. I bet you'll love it, and you'll bet, cry. You'll I've be, tried. No, I've, people have like, sat oh, no. me. People have sat me down to watch that movie, and once we get to hour 47, I'm like, I'm out. This is 
too much. One of the greatest double VHS movies Brent, uh, there ever was. Brent, Maybe. Brent, Brent, showing a lot of Munchak colors the last couple of weeks. In, yeah, in I'm his sorry. Movie. I'm just not, dude. That movie, like, whatever. Fascinating. <laughs> I so I missed it when it first came out, um, and I remember it was February '98. It was, I think, right before the Oscars. Um, it's right around the Oscars. Uh, and I was I was in a mood. I had had a, a you know an argument or whatever with with the, the person the girl I was dating at the time, and I was like, oh, forget it. I'm I'm going to the movies. I'm going by myself and storm off. And I'm like, I don't even know what's playing. Like, oh, fine, L.A. LA Confidential. I, I, everyone's been talking about it for months. Might as well watch it. So I sat just stewing, angry in the theater, and loved it absolutely loved it like this movie is amazing what have i been like how have i missed this this is totally like up my alley uh totally in a better mood leaving the theater uh and everything was great and then i got the book uh by james elroy and really uh enjoyed that as well um a lot of you know a lot of little differences between the the book and the movie which we'll talk about but and I and I actually now I, I barely remember the book. It's been so, I haven't read it since then. But uh, uh, I was a, a huge fan. And L.A. Confidential was actually the very first DVD that I owned. Yeah, wow. in '97. In '98, it would have been 98. summer '98. '98. When I was I, I I abandoned ship with the laser discs and jumped jumped on the bandwagon with DVDs. Yeah, I'm like super. I mean, I remember you were a huge laserdisc guy. I you had a VHS. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you had a VHS collection. I was amazed when we talked about this in the last one that you had not had a DVD player until '98. But I guess you had all other sorts of types of. I remember, so I was working at Suncoast when the first DVDs came out and, and we all remember those first, that first yeah. batch of DVDs. It was like Warner Brothers stuff. It was Color Purple and Batman and um, uh, I think it was some MGM because I remember Raging Bull was in there. Yeah, man. Uh, what else? It was a few, Blade Runner in was the, in, in there. The, in the cardboard, in the cardboard yeah. DVD cases i remember yeah. i was working at video impact the same exact time so yeah, yeah i was and i remember yeah. setting up that dvd player and putting one of those movies in and just being like this does not look any better than laserdisc this is ridiculous no one's gonna <laughs> latch onto this just get rid of these right now like and, what a uh, waste of time and money i will say laser you don't even have to flip the disc this sucks <laughs> I'm not getting any of my exercise. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> there was, yeah, but they didn't have, you know, they didn't have all those extra features that, that nerds like me love so much, uh, you know, that the Laserdisc had all the, you know, deleted scenes and the making of stuff and the audio commentaries. Those early DVDs did not have that. And, uh, and they had the wide quality. Screen, they had the widescreen version and the standard version. Yep. That was it, that's how you flip the disc. Yeah, you get both two for one. That's right. But uh yeah, eventually uh it just they, they were out marketing the 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 giant laser discs. So well the laser disc had only been out for about 20 years at that point. And so you <laughs> know still struggling. <laughs> their their time had come and gone. <laughs> uh 
Yep. So I, I switched over to DVDs and LA Confidential was the free DVD that I got with my player and uh, very happily, happily had that. So, um, and I've, you know, I hadn't seen it in years. I had watched it a number of times, you know, after it first came out, but I had not seen it uh, anytime recently. So uh, it was, it was fun to look back at it this time. But what what about you guys? Do you uh, you know anything about James Elroy, who was the author who wrote the original uh, the original novel? I don't. I know the L.A. Confidential is the third book in his L.A. Quartet series, which yeah. is kind of all sort of a similar. I think they they share characters and and some story connections and and things like that. I was yeah. actually going to ask: Have you read any of the other? No, but now I want to. I, I mean, I've always wanted to read Black Dahlia, um, yeah. but I, I actually didn't know about the other books. Um, so, so yeah, you're absolutely right. This is part three of a four-part uh, series that you can read as standalones. They're not, you know, you don't have to have read all the ones prior to it or, or after, but it does make it a more fluid um overall story of of los angeles and and if you if you do read them all but um yeah it starts with black dahlia which he wrote in 1987 the big nowhere which was written in 1988 la confidential comes out in 1990 and white jazz uh comes out in 92 and it does follow uh a lot of the same characters and not necessarily they're not necessarily main characters in every single one of the books but they they come in and out it's it's captain dudley smith and edmund exley and um buzz meeks is a character that comes uh that that is in a a bigger character i think in uh big nowhere i think it's big nowhere uh before he's a much shorter role in la confidential so they 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 do kind of all interweave so it'd be It'd be cool to read them if I have the time. But uh, James Elroy was a, is a, a famous crime novelist who uh, who actually grew up in L.A. and had a very troubled youth. Um, he had an alcoholic and, and sexually promiscuous mother who ended up getting raped and murdered in 1958. And the uh, yeah, the case was never solved. And obviously that's, uh, you know, caused a lot of psychological issues with him and he became fascinated with the the black dahlia case uh so he ended up really kind of deep diving into that and writing the book um you know he was really again troubled all the way up until like the early 80s before he started cleaning himself up and got into writing um and then you know a lot of uh he's had a lot of notoriety since then but um you know la confidential is one of the bigger movies uh of his that had come out i i saw the black dahlia uh film from i think what was it the the mid 2000s was not a uh not a giant fan of that one i think this was a much greater adaptation Uh, but let's talk about the development of the film are you guys so Curtis Hansen, are you guys familiar with any of his work or was he, was this your first time seeing one of his films? Uh, I think I saw, uh, what did he direct? You got to be a big river wild guy. Uh, David, you're all about the, 
canoeing and have, kayaking and i've been meaning to just see to see the river wild for so long actually oh that's a good one bacon, check bacon and streep yeah no bacon streep come on that's that's a, benjamin bratt ben bratt benny yeah. b benny b actually uh, david strathairn i think is in that too he's got to be he he's got to be a hansen hansen head he's got to yeah, be a hansen head no you think i've i've missed i've missed all of his movies other than this so i uh i, I haven't seen any of them I've seen a lot of his movies. I mean, I like I like Eight Mile a lot. Um, Wonder Boys right yep. after this going through. I mean, especially that Bob Dylan soundtrack is really great. Yeah. Um, uh, Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I remember being really popular Me when too. I was younger. Yep. The first movie of his that I ever saw was The Bedroom Window with really? I Steve Gutenberg. Oh. I saw that oh. on a family vacation. We were flying from Houston to Hawaii and back in that day, like our younger listeners will know that they that each seat in front of them now has a screen where you can watch whatever movie you want that they have available. But back in the day, there was one big screen that dropped out at the middle of the, the plane and you got to watch one thing and it was whatever they were playing. And that was the movie that they were playing. And I remember watching it and I was like, man, I was young. I was like in third grade, like going into fourth grade. I was thinking this is good, but it was kind of like not appropriate <laughs> for, really? for for all Wait, a Gutenberg movie is not appropriate. Are yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You got to check this one out, man. This one's uh, this one is this is no police academy, but uh, it's uh, yeah. I was like kind of shocked by all of it, but I was I was glued. I was glued to the to the screen watching it in the plane for sure. Huh. Mm. Well, I, I, it's a Guten classic that I haven't seen, so um, got got to put that on the list for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I really liked Hand That Rocks the Cradle, uh, Bad Influence, and uh, The River Wild. Those are ones uh, I was familiar with, but um, yeah. So he was not not like a household name director, but he was a consistently. I think a consistent director that his movies did well. Um, they weren't necessarily huge blockbusters, but they, they were successful enough that he had a good reputation and good creative mind. Um, he fell in love with the novel uh, after it had come out pretty quickly in 1990 after it had come out and uh, was pushing to uh, direct the adaptation of it, which was uh, owned at the time by Warner Brothers. Uh, at the same time, Brian Helgeland who uh, was an up-and-coming, mostly horror writer, uh, was lobbying to write it. And uh, he had done a movie we're going to cover probably next Shocktober, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. That's right. Very wow. So this is like a, a just a preview for that. <laughs> Almost the same movie. So Almost just... very similar. Yeah. Same worlds, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he did Nightmare on Elm Street 4. He did. He wrote Highway to Hell. He wrote 976 Evil and then kind of switched into more of the action genre and had wrote a little film called Assassins for Richard Donner hey. in 95. Uh, Has anyone seen Assassins? No. Uh, is that the one? Hold on now, because there's another one that I get confused with this, but is this the one with Antonio Banderas? And is it Sylvester Stallone? Oh, you got it. And Julianne yeah. Moore. Okay. Yeah, I've seen it. Saw that at the theater. 
Yeah, I just watched it for the first time. <laughs> All right. Wow. wow. I only saw it that one time. Banderas is like over the top. Yeah. It's like it's like Desperado times like four. He's just so much. Is he is he is it better than X versus Sever or <laughs> Not. <laughs> I don't think it can get better than that one. Did you see Ballistic X yeah. versus Seven? <laughs> I didn't. The, the, the best <laughs> title too. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So Helgeland's uh, floating around Hollywood and and really wants to get on this film. Ends up connecting with Curtis Hansen, and they're they're both just like really on the same page about about um, how to make this movie and how to structure it and what to change from the book and. Uh, but but Warner Brothers kind of wasn't really letting Helgeland in the door until he connected with Hanson. So together they were able to start, you know, really formulating a, a solid idea. And th- there's so much the, the book. It, it's similar to like the Game of Thrones books in that there's so many characters and so many plot lines in the novel that um, it's just way too much for one movie. So if you're going to make one movie out of that book, it's really got to get pared down. So they basically took out everything that didn't involve the three main police officers. Yeah. Cause there was, there were some other storylines about like a serial killer, which I assume yeah. like goes back to black Dahlia uh, possibly, I don't know, yeah. but, and then there's a, there's like kind of a Disney esque, family and in there that completely got cut out as well right yep yeah yeah there's there's a a number of storylines that just um didn't translate like jack vincennes has a whole drug past and and that's Mm. where his relationship with sid hudgens comes in and hudgens is like holding it over his head and you know using that to uh Oh. manipulate him uh bud white's hunt for the the serial rapist it goes into much greater detail um bud is like much more wounded at the end of the movie or at the end of the book i mean to the point where he probably won't be able to speak again and mobility is going to be permanently limited and not not looking very good for that character it, it, it's a little portrayed a little more lighter in in the film but um Edmund Exley's relationship with his father. His father's like a, a big character in the book and and is really eliminated from the movie. And um, so, yeah, there's just, there's a lot more going on, which all work for the novel. But when you're translating it to a film, it's uh, it's just too much. So, Well, and the trimming that they did works really well too. I mean, like it's, a, it's yeah. a strong, coherent, I mean, it, it was nominated for best Adap- adapted screenplay right mm-hmm. so yeah like they i think it won too so it's not like it's not like uh you know they uh they did a bad job of cutting the material out it's all pretty right. seamless yeah so once they've got it restructured uh, warner brothers decides to partner with new regency and and release the film or produce the film so curtis hansen has to do a whole visual pitch again to arnon milken who was uh uh, running New Regency, and he uses all classic LA postcards and you know posters and everything to give give that feeling of of how he's going to set the tone for this. So um, it worked, and the uh, and then they were kind of off to make the movie. 
a big part of this, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of creative elements coming together here, but let, let's talk about some of the cast. Huge cast. Nine, yeah, huge cast, a lot of big names, but not necessarily at the time. So two of our, our leads, Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce, really were not household names at, at all at the time. In fact, Guy Pierce, I think, had really just come over from from Australia. So I, I don't really I can't think of any movies that I was familiar with. Actually, one, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, which was an Australian film, but well known here. Hmm. Um, did you guys uh, did you guys know either of them going into this movie? Did you at, know of them? At the, you... at back in ninety seven, I don't yeah. think I knew them. Uh, no. I, I knew so. I knew of Priscilla Queen of the Desert because of working at the video store. Like it, I remember seeing it on the shelves and knowing about it and and knowing who Guy Pierce was from from that. I knew Romper Stomper for Russell Crowe and that he was in um oh, I can see him in Virtuosity. Virtuosity, yeah. yeah Virtuosity. That was, that was the thing that I that I recognized him from at the time. But this was definitely before uh they really became kind of household names like yeah pre-memento pre you know uh uh what's gladiator thank you yeah can't can't remember the name of that one i wanted to call it spartacus but that's uh you know about 30 30 years 30 years earlier um but yeah so that was about it though yeah i mean the rest of the cast though i mean it's an amazing cast like just up and down but the rest of the cast as far as danny devito and and uh the group there you know kind yeah, of it's, it's a really recognizable people yeah it's a cool mix of established well-known actors and with some up-and-comers as your leads yeah a guy a, not guy pierce but uh Russell Crowe, I had seen in virtuosity i m- was more familiar with him from the quick and the dead Sam Raimi film, mm-hmm. but yeah, he was definitely not Russell Crowe that we that we would know a few years later with Gladiator. And but all that being said, it's this movie that sort of launches them, you know, to get those some of those roles. And and Guy Pierce never became the the major star that Russell Crowe was, but he had a lot of great. Um, you know, mid-level films like Memento and and do you remember Ravenous? Do you ever see Ravenous? That was yeah. a, that was a that was a cool movie. But I just um, rewatched that a couple months ago. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's well done. It's an interesting movie. Yeah, it's like Dahmer Party. You know, sort of sort of story about uh, you know people eating people. People <laughs> eating people. It happens. You know, it's unavoidable sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes you just got no other choice. Sometimes you do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Russell Crowe, it would be what, three years later, he'd do Gladiator. Yeah. Is that but right? It's this, it's this performance that really shows that temper and that I remember right after this, we started hearing about the X-Men movie mm. and I was mm. all about him as Wolverine. Like he has to be Wolverine. Mm. And then it was like, nope, not at all. It's. <laughs> Other Australian guy, Hugh Jackman. You were on, you were on Team Wolverine for Russell Crowe. Team of one. I remember reading like Wizard magazine, and it laid out like all the actors who could play Wolverine, and it was like 
Kurt Russell, Robert De Niro, um, Harvey Keitel, oh and Russell yeah. Crowe. I was like, man, <laughs> Russell Crowe. Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think about it now, and it's like... I mean, I Hugh Jackman is is the tr- like he's Wolverine. He's still you know playing I mean? Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> it's there's no. I mean, he's been doing it now for how long? I mean, it's and he's retired years. Wolverine twice at least. Yeah, I mean, yep. Logan is excellent. Logan's great. Yeah, big fan. Yep. You know, like that's a great. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that, but yeah. still, great. it is. It's incredible. But Crow's per- both of their performance, um, really, really strong. You know, mm-hmm. Russell Crowe as as that the moral crusader with Bud White and really showing his temper and how he's uh, you know loses control like completely anytime there's a uh, you know a spousal abuse, let's say, and 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 wives getting beat up and um, anyone being you know, they don't really show kids, but it's mostly about women, you know, based on his character's past, which is very similar to James Elroy, that, you know, brutal history with uh, mothers being, you know, beaten to death, really. And, and, and Bud White carries that anger with him and that fuels him. Uh, but, but that look in Russell Crowe's eyes is just so captivating and so intense, uh, Really, really well done. And then you get the arc of the character. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting, the arc of both Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce's character, because ultimately at moments they become like what they most... Didn't want to be. Yeah, yeah, they that they fight most to to be against, you know? And it's... uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to watch that kind of transpire and see how they get to that point is pretty, pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Bud White character ending up, you know, hitting Lynn Bracken, his girlfriend, and realizing it right after he's done it that that what what's just happened and and his sort of meltdown after that. Yeah, um, really, really well done. And and then Edmund Exley, just a great character. I, I like mm-hmm. when I first saw it. I re- you really dislike him. I feel like in the beginning of the movie, and then by the end, you're. He's just this more, again, like a a different kind of moral crusader that he's, uh, you know, always, always doing this self-righteous bit of doing the right thing and kind of rubbing everybody's face in it, that, that that's what he's doing. Yeah. But ends up using that as a way to maneuver through the system. Yeah. And I think that's like these, these characters, like the things that we're talking about right now, I think this is like one of those elements that does very much lend itself to being film noir, right? Like it's that kind of like anti-hero type thing. Like all the characters in it are flawed, right? Like all the, all the protagonists have these things, like, like you were saying, like uh, Guy Pierce's character, Exley, you know, he's a, he's a, good guy with a moral compass but at the same time like he's willing to stab kind of anybody in the back or throw anybody under the bus to get to his next the next thing and then obviously you know uh russell crowe's character is flawed in that you know he's got this history he's kind of he's kind of a bruiser he you know like he, there's a little moral ambiguity as as far as like what 
he's willing to do and not do to people that are criminals that he thinks are, are bad or whatever, as long as he thinks he's on the right side of things. So it's, you know, like those types of things, I think are very kind of film noir-esque. Yeah, I think the balance of, right, exactly. The balance of these characters and the the contradiction and then the, the arc of them changing, mm-hmm. you know, in classic film noir, it almost be the other direction of where they're getting like they're digging deeper they're they're getting worse and more amoral as it goes along and here they're going the other direction of yeah you know finding themselves and and um you know applying their morality more than than the other way but yeah um, like an element that i think is missing like we have the femme fatale right and kim basinger kind of right? yeah seems that way in the beginning but she's not like a damsel in distress you know what i mean like she's very well competent and kind right. of playing a particular part, you know, to, to as well, you know, like she doesn't ever feel like she's being necessarily taken advantage of or is in trouble. She just, to me, like the character just seems to be driving certain elements. Right. Yeah. And she's, she's not, it's, it's interesting. Cause when we see her for the first time in the liquor store, when Bud White runs into her, you kind of expect her to be that that femme fatale, like like the Barbara Stanwyck from Double Indemnity. And then mm-hmm. as we get into it, she's really not that at all. She's just the character that is involved in the, you know, the plot that's going on sort of loosely, but is really just the one trying to humanize Bud White and, you know, give him back, you know, they fall in love and, and, and it, takes him out of being this kind of brute and hired muscle really. And just being an actual, like letting his, what he wants to do with his career. And then he wants to be a detective and she's helping, you know, push him in that direction. And, and she is tied up slightly with Pierce Patchett, who's running the call girls that look like movie stars. Right. That's sort of one of the underlying uh, plot lines. And right. But she's not using him to get to some, goal you know what i mean like she is very much like connected like it's i mean within the the movie like it's you know really a blossoming like love and and you know i mean connection is this oh go ahead david yeah they have like they have an actual love story because yeah he doesn't see her like all men see her but the funny thing is like she (laughs) she appears on screen she's literally in black and white like she's literally stepping out of a, yeah. night, a black and white film uh and he doesn't even see her he hears his voice and he's suddenly like i gotta get i gotta get I, it's just like it was kind of I, I found it kind of silly like oh a, a beautiful woman i don't even see her face i i must get to know her i gotta i gotta find out who she is but uh you know yeah she you know he looks at her for who she is and no man does either men men are used to just using her for 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 uh you know for all men use her um but except for him but he remains a brute throughout the the love story Mm -hmm. don't don't forget he he oh yeah he killed a man in cold blood like yeah you know but we do start to see the tender moments between them yeah he's she's his salvation right like and i guess that's the point but 
like them going away to Arizona, I kind of like that at the end of the movie because it is like you know he they're both leaving the slime covered. They're gonna uh, go Los Angeles, like yeah, they're gonna go open a dress shop. Yeah, like you know, like, that, that's kind of cool because I I mean I he, uh, Russell Crowe's fantastic in the movie, but I do not care for his character as like as I don't like his system of justice and both right. because a, he's just an extreme version of the rest of the department. Like they're all right animals. They're all animals. So like it's the 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 level of corruption goes the whole way, and it's and it's and you know Jim Jamie Cromwell is. He has the test. Like this is what it takes to be a cop in LA uh, for Exley, and Exley, you know, he he would fail. But uh, by the end, Exley has changed and does, and he gives into his uh, his lizard brain and uh, murders a guy, <laughs> a defenseless guy uh, who deserves it in a sense of, of the, the in the sense of the world. But uh you know he so yeah they've both they've both changed uh by the end actually uh he's he's got a moral code but he's also a political animal and he knows how to get to the top but he's not really hurting anyone he's taking advantage of terrible people uh to to for his own gain right which seems almost harmless in a sense compared to the compared to, yeah i mean compared to <clears throat> what some of the other people are going through yeah yeah, so it's it, it is a fascinating thing where they they come together and you know uh at toward at the end and uh they have to help each other. You never you didn't you didn't see that coming. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Um so yeah. She literally steps out of a black and white movie. Yeah. <laughs> like and uh, like it's it's like that's great. <laughs> I I never really loved her performance though. Like you know, I I know she won. Her performance is best su- supporting actress. There's something about it that I just it never, uh, I never took to it. It, mm-hmm. it 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 just felt like acting to me. That's like the one the one role that really like took me out of the movie. Hmm. I, and I'm sure I'm in the minority. Uh, hmm. I I don't know why I I feel that way. It just um, maybe didn't she now also, didn't she also win an Academy Award? Well, that's what I mean. Uh, this was her winning was like the first time it really like dawned on me of the the politics of the Oscars and you know was it did really like she won that over you know some of the other actresses who were up that year and uh, I just I just didn't really see it at the time and, and even watching it now i'm like i i feel like i've seen a lot uh greater performances in these kinds of characters hmm. that's gonna make it sound like i'm a very big anti kim basinger person but which is not true well i mean this was kind of more towards i mean she had gone through a little bit of a lull in in yeah. acting right like she was she'd been around for some time at this point and probably was getting you know fewer and fewer parts could it could it be that she was given the award for kind of like a a career achievement yeah i felt like that's what it was yeah like scorsese when he got it and you know i mean it happens all the time yeah we talked about it even with paul newman for the color of money yeah not that he didn't deserve it for that but 
it's also a career award. She was up to, against Gloria Stewart in Titanic. I'm like, okay. Well, that's well, well we Joan, that's garbage. So. Joan Cusack in In and Out, which I'm sure is funny. Uh, but Mini Driver and Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Should have won. Yeah, and then I, probably her best co- comp- competition was Julianne Moore in Boogie Nights. Um, yeah, right. I would. Yeah, think. yeah. That, like That's like. Probably. Look at, I, I'm sorry, but look at the two performances now, and mm-hmm. the, I mean, the, to yeah. me, there's a vast difference. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Julianne Moore is probably probably should have won that. But at the time, you know, Kim Basinger was a huge name, and and but I think Brent, I think you touched on it that by '97. She'd been around what 12, maybe 14, 15 years, something like yeah, that. She'd been acting for a long time. Yeah. And I, I think she was starting to hit that unfortunate, that Hollywood um ageism, especially with female, you know, with actresses that right. when they hit a certain age, then you know, they can't play necessarily play the sexy young, you know, you know, female lead. So what do they do? Um mm-hmm. I think she was starting to hit that, especially after some movies like The Getaway, which didn't really do well. You know, her I think her like mid nineties uh career was not as strong as her, you know, the the earlier part in Batman, which we talked about. But um so I think she was a, kind of a victim of that, uh, until you know, winning the Oscar here sort of gave her that fuel again and and she really I don't think really has had a consistent career since then, but she does pop up uh, here and there with, with some good performances. So, and probably more movies that she, I'm guessing that she, you know, handpicks and projects she wants to do rather than feels like she has to do. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT. And very hush, hush. Danny DeVito in the movie playing Sid Hudgens, the hush, hush uh, magazine reporter who uh, I really love how the, the opening of the film with his, his narration, which I think is the only narration of the movie, uh, yeah. where really does a nice job of setting up, setting the tone. We're seeing Los Angeles, his kind of happy you know, uh, uplifting sounding uh, tone versus the violence and the, the, you know, we're looking at Mickey Cohen and all the, the murders that are happening uh, around his, uh, his um, group and introducing their, our, uh, our main characters and just setting up the movie. I think that was really, really a strong opening. And Danny DeVito was just everywhere, right? In the 80s and 90s, it felt like he was just in like everything. Oh yeah, he's he's your go-to guy for, you know, character work in in Hollywood. <laughs> uh And he's yeah. still around, still doing um what's what's the uh show that he does on FX, the uh Always Sunny? Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, since yeah. season 2. Um You love I love a Danny DeVito. Yeah. Um, but yeah, great, uh, you know, a smaller role than the others and really just pops up in certain specific, uh, uh, scenes, mostly with the Jack Vincennes character. So, and Hush Hush magazine was based on the, the real life confidential magazine, uh, of the day, which was, I mean, I guess an early version of the, what the national Enquirer. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. it, was a, it was around for a while up until like the yeah, 70s, it was like right? 25 years or something was around. Yeah. Yeah, a little, uh, you know, and he was manip, you know, manipulating, uh, manipulating the, uh, the the hot goss stories and and crime and all that. Like he, yeah. he was he was entrapping people. Oh, <laughs> yeah. absolutely, and setting them up. Like it's fat. It's you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't enough going on. He had to he had to actually manufacture it and make <laughs> it happen. Like yeah, uh, I I found that fascinating. It's like. What if TMZ was doing all that today? <laughs> right. Oh my like, god. Yeah, it's so TMZ. <laughs> but like actually setting up the stories like if TMZ was working with a with a with a hot cop, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like the hot LA cop and and setting up all these things and then uh yeah, and trapping be... and trapping Christopher Lloyd with a with a prostitute. Like, <laughs> oh no. Christopher Lloyd, what happened? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, and he was only really like interested. I mean, mostly interested in just drug busts, right? Like that was kind yeah. of the the main yeah. thing he was concerned. Which also kind of, I think they even referenced like Robert Meacham in in the yeah. movie, which which goes back to like where it skirts the line between reality and yep, you know, fiction and nonfiction. And so, yeah, yeah, mentioning that the Robert Meacham the pot bust, which was such a huge thing it was you know again before the internet it was much easier to shield the public from the real lives of anybody in in the spotlight whether it's actors actresses um you know athletes you know all that stuff that we didn't really know anything about their lives so the rare times and it was usually under when someone would get arrested so robert mitchum who was one of the biggest film noir stars uh when he got arrested for pot it was it was a big deal um so it's cool to see the reference of that and sort of the recreation of it with with the jack vincennes character and busting the uh character played by uh simon baker who would go on to become a uh, big television star yeah the mentalist the mentalist the mentalist i was like i was watching i'm like i forgot the mentalist was in this (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) I was like, where do I know that guy from? I was like, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. That show that show had like eight, nine seasons. Yeah. Yeah. So at least something like that. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. But um yeah, Sid is is working with the, the Jack Vincennes character, who's sort of the third uh the third of our three lead uh, cops and and who is a good cop, seems like. Uh like he, he knows what he's doing, but much more fascinated with the uh being a, the technical advisor on uh badge of honor which is yeah. the basically what what in reality would have been dragnet yeah. yeah he's he's a bit starstruck he enjoys the limelight you know like sure um, he gets to just hang out on sound stages and schmooze with stars and that's and fun. everybody loves him and yeah. yeah so yeah that's not a bad lifestyle yeah <laughs> he's like not you don't know he's like a real cop right <laughs> right he, right he really starts having to be a real cop yeah but he's much more charismatic and um you know sort of the, the triangle of characters that we have all very different from each other and all sort of complementing each other although we don't see i don't think we ever see the three of them even though they are sort of all on the same side we don't really get that moment of like the three of them teaming up right we get them in pairs but not yeah. the full no. team up yeah no they're always yeah. separated. Right. I mean, they they share screen time occasionally. Yeah. Right. I mean, at least the bloody 
what was it the bloody, bloody christmas. christmas yeah christmas. By, they were all in that scene together but like yeah they're not they're not all three together you you really need a scene with the, just the three of them in a room i mean the, you don't really but it'd the, be cool. the let's do this scene <laughs> were um, all three of them in the interrogate interrogation scene i don't I think they were in the i think they were all yeah yeah there but there's not really just the way interaction that's shot. yeah, yeah that's great a lot scene. of moving yep that scene's great yeah but but yeah. uh yeah and it's uh you know there's a lot going on with this with this plot there's a lot of layers to it which um do you feel like it's clear or do you feel like it's a little overcomplicated? i think there has to be layers to make it work because there's so much going on and like i it does and it it holds your hand just enough to to keep following the threads like it's not it doesn't trust you enough to follow it on its own uh you know but it the, the it's a dense script with a lot a lot of moving parts and everything connects at the end like it yeah i think it really works really brilliantly yeah i i agree i think you know you've got three very separate sort of storylines going on that all come together very late in the game before you you're able to really put together how all these people are connected. Yeah. Yeah, I I would say that it I think it does work really well. I would say that like probably for me the first third meanders a little bit, you know, but I intentionally like mm-hmm. not letting on, you know. Um while we get to know the characters. I mean, you know pretty pretty quickly that it's about these three guys, right? I mean, they're the only three guys that in the openings, they're like putting their names up at the beginning of the movie. Like there's other big characters, but those are the only three that you get that typeface for. Right. So, you know, it's about them, but how they kind of fit together and when are they going to connect? Like that all takes a little bit of time because at the very beginning, they mostly seem to be at odds and working against each other. Right. Yeah, especially after the the bloody Christmas, which sort of sets sets everything up, right? Where yeah. where these um, the bloody Christmas, which is right after, no, that's before the night owl. Yeah, it's the, before. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's before yeah. the night owl. Yeah, so where these these uh, seemingly what immigrant criminals supposedly are brought in and right. um, may have. I think they do a good job of showing the game of telephone of, of these guys may have had some kind of interaction with cops who got wounded. And by the end, it's like the cops are on, you know, oh, he's on his deathbed and yeah, yeah it's last rights. And so it's like, come on, all the cops are, you know, at the station are, are riled up by this. And of course they're there. It's Christmas, which by the way, we are heading straight for Christmas at Reconsinimation. So this is a perfect bridge episode from November to <laughs> okay. Christmas. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're all like drinking in the station and, and that's just adding to their um, getting them riled up. And, and then a confrontation happens and there's, a, you know, almost a, you know, a, a beat down in right in the middle of the jail that's photographed by uh, the newspaper, you know, team that's there. So then everybody's in trouble, right? And then that's where Exley was the one on duty who was the only one trying to stop it. So now he's he's gaining some power in that he can help, you know, the LAPD 
wants to clean up their image at this time. And, and uh, even though they are corrupt, they want to at least make it look more publicly like they are, they are not. So uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's fascinating that it's like, you know, we, we learned that uh, Russell Crowe's character, he's, he's, he's essentially Batman. He's trying to, he's, he, he lives, he lives for the revenge of his, his mother's, his mother's rape and murder yeah is that yeah, yeah. like so he's just for he's, murder can, not well, really, i don't think yeah, no but, no oh, his, yeah. fa- his father his father beat his mother to death oh that's right he watched in, his, in front his of father yeah. beat, as he so was as he was tied or right. handcuffed or whatever that's to right. the that's right radiator. i was confusing elroy's uh story. yeah yeah um yeah. and so uh so then and then they and then, and then they never f- saw his father again so he's batman trying to avenge his mother like complete rage yeah uh and actually uh well no wait and he his why did he become his, a cop? his father what? was like the yeah. like the greatest he's, cop greatest but cop. he was he was murdered by a criminal right who was never caught never and caught he, and he gave that criminal a name rollo tomasi rollo tomasi give rollo him some character rollo tomasi and then Which seems like an anagram to me. I don't know if anybody else feels yeah. like that. Oh, yeah, probably is. And then uh, Vincennes, he didn't even remember why he became a cop. You know, he's schmoozing with right. Hollywood and stuff. But like, so, you know, essentially, but you got to figure he has, he had some sort of sense of justice or something that he wanted to complete. But then he became this, this guy, he became this, like, the tmz loving uh, like hollywood dude yeah and then eventually who so like the you know they could all be batman (laughs) and they're but uh it's it's all it's all a different focus and uh you know it's like nature versus nurture like you know part of their nature probably would push them toward those directions like i i would assume (laughs) Uh, Russell Crowe's character would be, I think Bud White would be a pretty rage-filled guy either way. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, or, or you know, apt uh, for for rage. And uh, actually would always be a little more bookish, but also smart and maneuvering. Right. And um, Vin- Vincennes, you know, always a, a, a smarmy kind of slippery guy i don't know it's it's they're really i think they're all really fleshed out well presented in that way and they're all given proper time to have an arc Mm -hmm. um yeah like like what a day you know and it's this is what two hours and 10 minutes or something like something like that it's it's a it's a it's a good good size movie but it's not it's not overly long it gets to the point every it's a dense script. Everything happens for a reason and advances the plot yeah, well, pretty quickly. Well, yeah. And then the night owl massacre is sort of the centerpiece to the movie. Right. And that's what gives each yeah. of our three leads fuel for that's their motivation. Right. Yeah. Cause Exley, you know, comes across this, this diner where, where, you know, everyone in the diner has been killed and more than just killed. They've been piled up. The bodies have been piled up in the bat in the bathroom. Yeah. And right. So there was well, and, and one of the cops happens to be, or one of the one of the one of the people killed happens to be an ex cop who right. was and one that Exley got. Well, it was Bud White's former partner, right? Who yeah. was one that became the scapegoat for the the uh, bloody Christmas that right. Exley was leading the charge on. So then you've got Bud White wants revenge 
for his partner's death. Exley wants justice for the public, for just a massacre having happened in a public place. And then Vincennes needs to solve, needs to be involved with solving that case so that he can get out of trouble and get back on the TV show because he's been suspended from that <laughs> for his involvement in Bloody Christmas. So um, they've all they've all got their own motivations. And then we just start, you know. Well, and hold on. Did we even say that, you know, Bud hit Bud's penalty for being part of Bloody Christmas is that he actually lost lost his badge like he was. Right. So, yeah. He temporarily. Was temporarily suspended, I suppose. And only brought back when Captain Dudley Smith, in a great, great performance by James Cromwell. Yeah. Uh, who who doesn't have bad performances. No, really <laughs> never. It's true. Nope. Even in Eraser. Even in Eraser. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen Eraser. <laughs> he had two movies in 96, and it was Eraser and Star Trek First Contact. Ooh. Yeah. And then Babe, you know, Babe, was, I think was he'd been around for since yeah, but, the 80s, but Babe was what really like put him on. Made him a household, kind of a household name. Yeah. Wow, really? Was it Babe? That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Made a mainstream. Yep. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, but, but Dudley Smith brings Bud White back on the force because he needs some more muscle for his own mm-hmm. private justice that he's sort of uh, working with that we only really see glimpses of. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, and then we just start to follow the three as they kind of work the case, right? And 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 they start interacting with each other more, and and we start getting. This is where the, their characters start their arcs. Yeah, you get a nice like yeah. act one setup, and then you get then you get act two. That like, all right, now let's get into the story. Yeah, you know. Uh, so yeah, uh, I I really just I liked I just liked all the crisscrossing of all these characters. Uh, yeah, you know, just, yeah. I mean, when, once you start to like by act two, like you're on board with these guys, like you, you know, that Bud White wants to be a real cop and wants to get out of this situation. So you're mm-hmm. emotionally behind him. Exley is so passionate with his sense of justice, but you actually you're with him now. Like he's not just trying to make a name for himself. Like he's actually trying to solve this case. And Vincennes, we actually see him doing good police work instead of just being the schmoozy guy. Yeah. So, Schwarmy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, performance wise, all, you know, really well done. And you still have a great supporting cast too, with Dave Strathairn and Ron Rifkin. And Ron, there. yeah, my, my old friend, Ron Rifkin, your buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Ryan Gosling. No, wait, that's no. He's not in this. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> who else is in this movie <laughs> there's a ton of uh you know there's there's a lot of familiar faces let's say in this movie too yeah. um but uh Strathairn's another another guy who's been around forever who also barely seems to age um no he always had that gray-haired look for yeah, like always, 25 and, years the salt and pepper look yeah yeah, yeah. But uh, again, another guy with uh, probably never turns in a bad performance. Um, I will say though, the, the movie does feel very much like a guy's movie. Oh yeah, you know it's yeah. written by a guy, directed by a guy. All the leads except one are guys. Um, you well, know, and it does, and that female lead doesn't have a whole lot of yeah range. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not much to it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's really not, and and there's not a lot speaking highly of women in this. They're they're basically shown as just being abused, right? Either physically beat up, used as prostitutes, or mm-hmm. you know, having been raped, really. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, mean, that's the only time you see them. Yeah. Right. When Bud in Act Three comes to confront her about having slept with X Lee, and she's wearing you know shorts and like a shirt, and I'm like, oh, she's not wearing pajamas, like you know, she's not ready for sex, like she she doesn't have her, all of her makeup done, and like, oh, she's a person, <laughs> she's not just this statuesque right. beauty waiting yeah. for a man to come to her home, like she had the day off, you know, <laughs> like she had the, she had the afternoon off. <laughs> And I think that's, I think that was important that, that, that was her look for that scene that, yeah. you know, she wasn't this, like some, this, this creature to be put on a pedestal. Like she's like, a you know, she's a normal human woman, like, uh, and you know, and he still takes his rage out on her. Yeah. Like, um, so I think that's a great intentional choice that she, she didn't look like, cause like her power, I guess, or whatever is in her beauty throughout the movie. Um, and her vulnerable state is without, you know, it's a, it, it it is such a dude's way to look at a, a woman and her very much her her power and influence over other men, um, because they can you know women are it's like women are either the salvation or the ruination of men uh, in this kind of situation like, yeah um, or or a thing to be rescued you know yeah so yeah uh, and that really all of that really stood out to me watching it this time. Yeah, I I don't I I'd say for the nature of the story and the time it takes place, it's it's culturally kind of seems you know male centric, but probably more or less probably accurate in terms of like well, yeah, cultural norms. And, yeah, um, um, you could do a 1950s cop movie with women as actual characters, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be this this kind of movie probably. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you couldn't at the time, and there weren't, you know, female detectives. So, you right, know, what would uh, you know? There were secretaries. A, you saw them as right. there was three or four secretaries right. in the movie. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's just you know, again, I, I I don't I can't say what I would have done differently, but um, sure, sure. it did. Looking at it from the modern perspective, which you know, you guys having seen it much more recently than I have for the first time. Um, you know, did that jump out at you? Was there anything else that was, you know, looking back at it really as a 90s movie, but also speaking to the 50s? Was there anything else that stood out that that bugged you guys? Yeah, that's, I don't think th- so. That's really the only, I think, element that that really like um, jumped out to me on this this rewatch. But really, but the other part is, is just the... Uh, the questionable film noir of it all, <laughs> uh, like we were talking about in the opening of the show, uh, the the it's it's this is always included in modern noir lists, but it just it's a great script and a great story, and you know everything is is working here, but it just I don't know if it's actually film noir. I mean to qualify as as a film noir like you have to use some of those typical elements right and this just doesn't really have any of those i think it's got some of them right like well, it's again got, it's just because it's in the 50s well no but it's got the bookend narrations right it's got 
It's got no. There's no narration at the end. It's only the opening. Because Sid Hudgens is dead by the end. Spoiler mm. alert. <laughs> okay, so it's got narration. We'll leave it open ended. Like I said, it's got it's got, I think elements. I think the 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 flawed actors like or the flawed the flawed protagonists. Yeah. Kind of seedy locations. You know, it's got the whole L.A location situation going yeah. on with it the i'll the say the light the anti-heroes the lighting is not right that, not that's a big one all. yeah that's a, that's a huge one like it doesn't have that visual and it's dante it's uh it's dante spinotti who's a, a great dp um yeah. and it's just he's just using a lot of you know there's a lot of daylight a lot of yeah natural lighting so yeah and i'd say that's probably the biggest element that works against it being kind of noir in my in my opinion but i don't know i think the storyline i mean it doesn't have the damsel in distress but it does have the femme fatale you know even though like we we've said like her role is not one that's really pushing towards a like a nefarious goal of her own for some you know um so I don't know. I mean, again, like, yeah, it's it doesn't fit exactly. But, I, you know, I mentioned this in the last podcast we did. I think that there is controversy in general amongst people about what is and isn't film noir. Like, you can look at anything out of the, the 40s and, like, 50s, like, outside of that classic noir, and people will argue if it is or isn't even the right. stuff that's in that time frame, you know, people don't necessarily always agree on what is and isn't film noir. So, but I mean, in this case, this is obviously an extreme kind of example, but I, I would say that, you know, depending on what side of the fence you are standing on, I, I can see arguments both, both ways. Yeah. I, I, I can understand it either way too. Um, the music, Jerry Goldsmith's score Fantastic. So well done. I mean, there's echoes of his Chinatown score in it, but that's done intentionally and uh, really, really good score. Um, you know, especially in the later part of his career, just really, I, I really love this one. Uh, and that, you know, the music is a big part of noir as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, probably my favorite moment in the movie though this is one of the greatest i still think one of the greatest uh villain turns that i've ever seen that moment where you know dudley smith just captain dudley like turns on jack vincennes is you know no i knew it was coming obviously i knew it was coming i'd seen it but watching the way they play you know physically played the space and and uh, the way Dudley like maneuvered that as a character, perfectly done. You know, he he knows that just because Jack Vincennes just showing up at his door, he knows that he's gonna figure out that it's Dudley Smith who's the one behind everything. So he's really got no choice to just take Vincennes out, and you know, making the tea and then walking the tea over and handing him the tea so his hands are. Jack's hands are occupied and then just he's got a gun like in his robe and just does the spin and shoots him right in the heart. Yeah. 
like mm-hmm. out of nowhere. It's really well done. Yeah. It's amazing to me that I, I waited 25 years to see this movie and that moment had not been spoiled for me. Like it had not been, yeah. Like I, there were no spoilers for that. Like I had no, I, I, I had no previous information walking in that that was going to happen. Now that being said, watching the movie, like I was fully convinced there was definitely an inside job going on, and like there was bad stuff happening, and I was expecting something of that nature, but the scene when it delivered was like you said, I mean, it's, it's really well choreographed and crafted. Yeah. Cause the, the, like everyone's guard is down, right? Like Jack trusts Dudley. That's why he's there. He's really there for help. Yeah. Um, and it's just so well done. The tone of that scene is just like, we're chill. Everybody, you know, we're just come into the house. We'll talk about it. And then boom, like the, the big reveal. Well, Just, I think the most genius moment of it all is is Jack Vincennes saying Rolo Tomasi. Yeah. Yeah. He knows yeah. he's going to take him down with that. Right it's, at <laughs> right at that moment. It's like perfect. It's like, yeah. oh, because what's he going to do? He's going to look to try and to to yeah. close that, you know, close yeah, that loop. That, yeah. That that and that's the smile as he dies. It's like he even though he's he's dead. He's actually outsmarted Dudley and he's gonna, you know, still plays a hand in in exposing Dudley. Yeah. Without that, without that, that that would have Yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's a great moment. It's yeah. a really great moment. Uh great performances. And, and then when uh following that up, when Dudley, you know, pulls Exley aside and asks if he knows about this Rolo Tomasi, that like and it that moment also. Yeah is where where Exley knows that yeah that 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 connection right there like yeah. that little moment like that connection between Vincennes saying it and and Dudley coming up to Exley and and planting the the seed that he knows is yeah. like probably my favorite little moment of the whole thing yeah. I mean it's all done really well but like that little piece exactly it's just like so perfect yep that that's that's where it becomes like a different movie, you know. Yeah. That, that's like that really perfectly executed. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just accelerates to the climax. Like like that's it. Everything everything's everything yeah. speeds up from that point. Yeah. Just, well, I mean, absolutely. That's when that's when Exley and and uh, Bud White like join forces. Like they right. have it out for each other, and they basically right like i mean that's pretty much where it, yeah where it yeah out. there's one or two steps to get them together and then yeah uh you know they're yeah they're, their paths are, are narrowing and until they converge uh yeah huge it was great yeah and then the lead up to you know you get your final shootout of the movie and um another well well executed scene what what david i'm wondering are those dudley's like crime people or are those bunch no, of cops those are, are cops co- like i i clocked like at this time that that those were the other cops that exley was talking to in the station throughout the movie like i, I actually paused it and looked at like their basically faces. the whole station is just like yeah it's it's amazing cr- its that, own crime ring yeah yeah so like 15 cops die in this one location yeah. <laughs> like yeah. holy shit speaking and of the, so the, the, the papers Victory are gonna Hotel. have a field day yeah the victory motel like that location like with all the oil grasshoppers yeah 
That's the same location as the red sand area from Beverly Hills Cop too, right? Like- uh, I think it might. Be. I'm not. I I haven't looked up Beverly Hills Cop too, but that was in Baldwin Hills. It's like the the uh, you know the hills overlooking L.A. basically, and that was a, that was a set that they built for that. The the motel was, but yeah. like the grasshoppers and all that, like the oil, that's all like there. The oil that was pumps, a- like that's all there. Yeah, I'm almost positive that that's the same location that. It could be Eddie it very Murphy well could and be. Judge Reinhold and all them like go and break well, into some warehouse. Everyone will have to wait until we cover Beverly Hills Cop one and two, uh, hopefully sooner rather than Summer later. Summer twenty twenty four. That's those are big ones. Beverly Hills Cop's a big one. We haven't uh, touched on yet. No, we haven't. Anyway, it's yeah, we're planting very well, seeds. It could be that that same location. We're gonna we're we're gonna Rolo Tomasi this and we're planting <laughs> the seeds now and then boom. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of great locations. I mean, this is a, clearly a very, you know, LA centric movie, um, yeah. with, uh, you know, for those that are listening that have been to, or live in LA, a lot of cool locations, uh, seeing pop up, you know, the, the frolic room and the, the, uh, Formosa cafe, which I think are both still there. Um, the, uh, that Hollywood center motel is, is, uh, right near Hollywood High. Uh, we're all over sort of Los Feliz with Patchett's house and and uh, Elysian Park. And the the Night Owl Cafe is uh, on 6th Street downtown. Lynn's house is is just uh, just right near Paramount. Um, yeah, so all kind of on the, a lot of it kind of on the east side, the downtown east side area of LA. Uh, but it was uh, it was cool to see a lot of sort of familiar locations, hmm. and it's part of you know those those noir double indemnity too. We talked about mm-hmm. that that they're very like specific about where these places are in Los Angeles and using right. the real locations. Yes. Um, let's see what else the. Uh, you know they, they've been working apparently the a sequel was being developed and i don't i don't think it was necessarily I, i'm not sure if it was based on the same plot lines as in the books uh, i don't think it was i think it was a straight sequel to the movie that was being developed uh, i think about three or four years ago with uh that was going to have chadwick boseman as the lead oh, but hmm. also with guy pierce and russell crowe returning Really, and it would have been set in 1974. Uh, so I, I think the project kind of hit the brakes once uh, the sad uh, passing of of Chadwick. But um, hopefully they can. Th- I, I'm real curious what that would have been. I feel like it would have been could have been cool. Yeah, I I would love a, another detective story uh, with got with Exley involved. Yeah. <laughs> be yeah, no, I'm just thinking about that. How do they connect that all back together? You know, like it's definitely many, many years down the Yeah, I mean it would be storyline would be about 20 years later, right? And yeah, you know, we leave it with with uh Bud White, you know, really wounded driving off with Lynn to, you know, start a new life together in Arizona. And Exley uh ends up moving up again moving up the chain politically within the department sacrifice sort of sacrificing honor along the way and having to you know call dudley smith a, a hero instead of the absolute villain that he was 
in order to get his promotion. So um, could be interesting to see that character is very complex and would probably only get more so over time. Yeah. He'd probably be governor of California. <laughs> that, at that point. <laughs> like, why, you know, why, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, why stop? Why stop? That's his, you know? that's his trajectory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, or, you know, something like that. He would be politically. Absolutely. Well-connected, you know, he probably. I mean, that, that whole, you know, the, his, his whole character and his, the way he maneuvers up the system is, is very similar to uh, a plot line from the wire um mm. where where we see a very similar thing with a politician who gets into it for noble and the right reasons and and uh you know ha- what they have to sacrifice along the way to make a difference you know i i get the idea of like you know bad things are going to happen he's not manufacturing them but he's taking advantage of them yeah you know if he he does exact justice on dudley knowing like you know it's it's a version of justice that the rest of those freaking cops would have done um but he uses that that propels him if if dudley lived he never would have been able to to maneuver that like that so justice is still served in a sense but yeah he's got to call dudley a hero at that point yeah well dudley even said you know that that uh exley is out you know is, is smarter than him politically yeah 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 so so yeah, I mean, so that he does. I guess he does manufacture with the murder with murdering Dudley, but I don't know. Yeah, like he Dudley was trying to kill him for not that I'm saying shooting an unarmed man in the back, though. I mean, geez, that's pretty that's pretty rough. Well, and in the books too, the fascinating thing is that Dudley lives. Oh wow! Like, yeah, Dudley continues on, and so does Exley, and and uh, there's another main character, and I guess the fourth book who is sort of driven to kind of take down Exley and expose like his, his own corruption that he's been, that we've seen from his point of view um, through the years and, and and Dudley has survived and and, and I'm not sure exactly what his interaction is, but uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, should we talk a little, a little box office glory and see how this one did? For sure. Sure. Why not? All right. Okay, LA Confidential is released September 19th, 1997. Uh, That's its wide release. It had a $35 million budget and it opened with uh, a $5.2 million opening weekend. Uh, It debuted not really did not did not have a lot of momentum at the start but it debuted at number 4 against in and out wishmaster mm. and a thousand acres i don't even know what a thousand acres is but wishmaster um Classic. And, yeah and it debuted between so behind wishmaster uh but ahead of full monty which which the full monty had been out for a few weeks already uh, and you know what I saw that weekend, opening weekend? Brent, you might have been with me. Wishmaster. Wishmaster. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> definitely. Uh, for sure. Did, uh, Cam, it, did Cam take us to that one? Uh, definitely did. Yes. Yeah. I may have been to that. I may have been there. Uh, I want to say we saw that at the Via Linda Mall in Santa Fe. Yeah. So if Cam wasn't there, he was probably working. Yeah. But yeah definitely 
Uh, LA Confidential was number 22 of 1997, so it did play a bit of catch up there. Uh, ended up between Anaconda, but ahead of In and Out this time. So ultimately, it did best In and Out, but couldn't quite take down that giant Anaconda. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it ended up with $64.6 million domestically and $126 million worldwide. So that's definitely a big hit. So I think it just took, um, you know, wasn't a splash on its first release, but was one of those that was a slow build and, and definitely took it over time. Um, it ended up with nine Oscar nominations and two wins. So nominated for Best Picture, Director, Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger, Best Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, Score, and Sound, uh, winning Supporting Actress for Basinger and Adapted Screenplay. So some, someday I'd like to go back to some of these Oscars and, and sort of like re-review in, in do hindsight. An, do an audit? Yeah. Like, mm, really? Yeah. Really? I, there's some of that. I just, I don't know. You know, Julianne Moore's performance in, in Boogie Nights is like, just amazing and and you know i i know i wasn't speaking that highly of kim basinger's it's a good performance it's just it's a is different it, level is it the best performance though yeah best supporting I mean, actress performance i don't look know. you know as time goes on that's part of what we do on this show is we look about look at how is it aged now yeah we reconsinimize we reconsinimized it and so I think you could do that with a lot of categories in many years that, um, you know, should uh, should ordinary people have beaten Raging Bull? I don't know. We'll have to do an Academy Awards episode before this next year's Academy Awards. Yeah, let's do it. Let's put it in the books. On, exactly. Maybe we'll get some some friends to join us on that re-review. Yeah. Re um, so yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you think the the film's legacy is? Uh, looking at it, what we're twenty five years later, um, where do you think it holds up? I mean, I still feel like like we've said it, it it pops up on these when you search modern film noir or neo noir, like it does pop up. So I think it's always going to have some kind of relevancy for being a part of that. But um, what what do you guys think about it? I mean, as far as legacy, I don't know. You know, I mean, it was, it's a, look, I avoided it for 25 years and I don't feel like I missed much. I'm glad that I have seen it and um, now I will not avoid it moving forward. I'll probably watch it sometime again in my life and I'll be happy that I've seen it those couple of times. Uh, I think that for me, what really stands up is like, okay, this is, this is kind of uh, a good movie with great performances by a couple of actors who eventually went on to, to make it big. And, you know, like if I'm looking at a career retrospective of like Russell Crowe or Guy Pierce, like this is one of those movies that I'll be like, Hey, I should watch this again so that I see this, this, kind of stepping stone for them but i don't know i mean it's good it's not i mean you it's know a, but I, I don't think i don't think it's it's like a top you know in the top 90s dramas like it's a it's a cop thriller period detective movie <laughs> you know like it's it's really it's just solid throughout 
Um, and I think it's, I think it's like, it's firmly nineties, you know, like, and, and on the higher end of, of that list. So, uh, I don't know. Well, I, I, I think also to, to put it in perspective, as far as the year 97 goes, you know, you look at a lot of the things that have been coming out that year and, and we're just coming out of the summer with your, your con airs and your face offs and your men in blacks and those big giant blockbuster movies. And then in September, we've got, you know, that's when traditionally you get your, your Oscar movies start to come out. And this was a big one that, uh, okay. Like, all right, now, now there's something I can chew on. There's something of substance and something of, you know, like real creative quality. Uh, so I think in when it came out, that's part of why it made such an impact that, and same thing with Boogie Nights um, and Good Bull Hunting too, that just like, oh, they're not these blockbuster, you know, however many millions of dollars, you know, budget, a hundred, you know, million dollar budget. It's uh, uh, just something I can chew on. So I, I think that's why it stood out then. Looking back now, I think it's a good movie. Um, it's a really well done screenplay. And, um, you know, again, some some solid performances. It has a couple strikes working against it that are going to hold it back probably forever. But, um, sure. uh, you know, if, you, if you're a Russell Crowe fan, I don't think he's turning out work like this anymore or anytime recently. You know, it's been a, been a while since he's had a really solid uh, movie and character to play unless you count Zeus from, from Thor, uh, the latest Thor movie. Love and I liked Thunder. him in nice guys, the nice guys, nice guys. Was, that was five years ago. Yeah. But, also but that another, is, yeah, that's five years ago. Neo-noir movie. So yeah. Neo-noir. Um, I LA. love, yeah. Shane Black's night, the nice guys. Great. Yeah. Great movie. Oh, beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I, I that was, was big, eight big, years ago. Was it eight? That's no, six, six, 2014. 2016. 16? Yep. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we could easily, uh, you know, I feel it, it feels it does feel longer. Uh, but no, 2016 is when it came out. I mean, ah, maybe, maybe, maybe I, was, you know what? Maybe I first maybe, started hearing about it because I remember when we were in Atlanta, David. Uh, uh, yeah. But I might have just read something then. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there, you know, an LA based cop movie with Russell yeah. Crowe. Everyone's talking about that. That's one we got to watch. That Let, let's let's just put great. that in the screening room. Yeah, yeah. We'll run but that I, on a loop. I feel like Russell Crowe could come out and do another thing, though. You know, and like yeah. it, it, it could be excellent. You know what I mean? Like I don't really think that, even though he's not pumping them out, he's not what he once was as far as like post Gladiator. Yeah. You know, pre Mummy, but Be- like beautiful <laughs> mind. You know. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but still like i i think i think he's he's got it in him yeah you know? yeah um yeah i don't know i well, uh maybe we'll get the sequel maybe we'll get that sequel at, at some point they'll they'll continue developing it and we'll see that'd be cool yeah. i actually would be totally down like if they made the sequel i would be excited yeah for that i would too i i, I i'm definitely interested where those characters could be um, seeing those actors in those roles again would be uh, something really, really fun. So, yeah, uh, we'll see if it happens. But um, yeah, so film noir that was that that this has been our noir November twenty twenty two. 
lot of fun looking back at film noir, uh, both old and I guess it's not new, but newer now. Uh, so maybe we'll, maybe next November we'll have to take uh, another deep dive into a couple of other film noirs, but we'll see. But I'm excited, and I, I'm sure you guys are too, because the holiday season is right around the corner, and we got a little sprinkle of it in, in L.A. Confidential with uh, uh, <laughs> the bloody Christmas here. But we are right. we're we're steamrolling ahead. Um, I think yes. we've got a fun lineup for our uh, our holiday season. Are, are you guys looking forward to it? Absolutely. Heck yeah! I'm super jazzed. <laughs> Yeah, we got we got some good ones that have been on the list, so uh, it's it's going to be fun. And maybe we'll get a maybe we'll get a guest to jump on for uh, one of them, but we'll, we'll see what our our legal teams can work out. Right, contracts have to be settled. Contracts have to NDA, be settled. NDAs must be signed. Yeah, all that. Yeah, it, it's quite a, quite a bit with the reconsent legal team, but yeah, it's never a dull moment with us <laughs> with us. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we hope everyone has a, a great Thanksgiving coming up. And uh, uh, don't forget to check us out on social media. We're at Reconsideration Podcast on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, check out the archives at Reconsideration.com. Don't forget to give us a uh, rating and a review. It'll really help us out. And a quick thank you to our friends, Curtis Moore for the poster, EK Wimmer for the theme song, Check out our friend Jay Blake Fischera and his Scored to Death uh, podcast and his books. But uh, we will see you next time as the holiday season arrives at Reconsinimation. Take care. Bye now. Los Angeles. The sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty, and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house, and inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this, and who knows, you could even be discovered, become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. In the hit show Badge of Honor, the LA cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden, but there's trouble in paradise. And his name is Meyer Harris Cohen, Mickey C to his fans, local LA color to the nth degree, and his number one bodyguard, Johnny Stompanato.
Mickey sees the head of organized crime in these parts. He runs dope, rackets, and prostitution. He kills a dozen people a year. And the dapper little gent does it in style. And every time his picture's plastered on the front page, it's a black eye for the image of Los Angeles. Because how can organized crime exist in the city with the best police force in the world? Something has to be done, but nothing too original, because hey, this is Hollywood. What worked for Al Capone would work for the mixture. Mr. Cohen, you're under arrest. Non-payment of federal income tax. But all is not well. Sending Mickey up has created a vacuum, and it's only a matter of time before someone with balls of brass tries to fill it.